lives under his lordship. It's this sort of lifelong discipline of learning to let ourselves die in order to take on this newly formed identity as a son or daughter of God. It's pretty amazing when you think about it that God has offered us himself. This is the nature of the gospel. And that our pursuit of him, our recognition of his, his goodness and his grace in our lives, allows us to become more like God. We are, we are cast in a daily way and recast into the image of God. And so in light of that this morning, we're going to look at how the Bible speaks about this. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to take on the identity or the image of Jesus, and then what one of the main challenges that often keeps us from that identity are. There are a lot of things we could have spoken about today when it comes to challenges, but there's only one that I want to mention. And the essence of what we're going to talk about today is the the nature of the Christian faith is God pouring into us so that we can pour out into others. And one of the great challenges of this idea in our modern world is that we often live in a world where we're encouraged to just pour into ourselves. And so I want to talk about uh, what it means to be reshaped into the image of Jesus, but also what it means to, to recognize that we live in a world that touts and in many ways believes that consumption, consumerism, is the main idea that we, we, indic- we talk about this idea to be able to signify what is or is not healthy in our world. And I promise I'll get into more details here in a few moments regarding that contrast. So before we do that, I want to jump right in and get to this first part of our, of our, our teaching today. It's a foundational truth that we have to know if we, we really want to be a disciple of Jesus. And the first idea is this. Everyone is reflecting the image of something in their life. Image bearing should not be a new subject in this room. I've talked about it before, and I talk about it again because it's an incredibly important teaching. It's an incredibly important truth. It actually is the foundation of many of the truths that we adhere to in the Bible. And I'll reread, although we read the creation account, there's only one verse that I really want to talk about this morning in that. We read the entirety of that teaching for context. But in the middle of all this, in Genesis 1.27, we read this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, in those verses in Genesis, they teach us that God has created every single person as a mirror meant to reflect something in life. We have been designed to reflect That's what it means. And a quick survey of how people live makes this biblical truth inarguable. So, for example, let's just talk about image bearing in general. We see it in how children often grow up to be like their parents. That stuff rubs off on them in the same way that it's rubbed off on us as we were raised by our parents. We carry many of their traits. We carry their DNA. We carry things that make us like them. And in many ways, we reflect their image. Athletes, this is very true if you've participated in any type of athleticism, they often pattern their lives after other athletes. So if you are playing a particular sport, there are sort of heroes that people look up to, other men and women who are accomplished in those sports, and they look to them and try to become like them. They imbibe their characteristics or their traits. Maybe it's discipline or hard work, whatever it is. They look at these folks and they they want that image in their own life. You can see this in our vocations, particularly in the business world or whatever career you are in, there is likely at some point in life somebody that you looked up to. That, that's part of what we say is a healthy growth trajectory in our vocations. We have mentors or we're doing internships or in the Christian faith we're being discipled by other men and women whom we, we see and there are things about them that we really enjoy and like and because of that we want to reflect those same things. It's really the nature of apprenticeship in general or internship is designed to build, this, to build this into people. You're trying to take sort of images that are yet to be made and you're molding them into the image of what you desire for your company or your business or whatever else it is that you're doing. 
in all of this, the idea is that we want our lives to be remade into the image of someone that we admire. And the reason we are like this as people, it's explained right here in Genesis. We, we would say very strongly that the desire to bear the image of something is a universal trait that all humans share. And it's really part of the foundation upon which a disciple of Christ must build their life. While all people are meant to reflect something, in the Christian faith, we are called to reflect a very particular someone, and his name is Jesus. So these teachings are showing us that everyone, from the moment of birth, we're literally hardwired to reflect the image or identity of something. What's funny about this is when we think about, I've sort of given you proactive ideas of image bearing, when we are forethinking about people or things we can, we can look like or desire to be like, sometimes these identity decisions are conscious meaning you, you figure them out or you think about them. But for a great many people, they're not conscious. Sometimes we choose a person we want to be like. Let me start here. People say things like, you know, we just celebrated Abraham Lincoln's birthday, and we think, oh, that guy had an unshakable tenacity in the face of extreme adversity. That's somebody I'd like to be like. Or maybe in your career right now, there's a particular businessman or woman you look up to, because when it comes to business, they really know what they're doing. That's the proactive side of this. Other times, if we're not aware of the fact that we're meant to bear the image and are bearing the image of something, other times this decision is entirely unintentional. And what happens is we are being, stuff is rubbing off on us. We are absorbing the image of people or things in our lives because we're, we're so close to them. This can be both good and it can be bad. So let me give you some examples of this. Here's some good ones. So let's just say as you were growing up, you never set out to be a person who had a really big heart or was generous. But maybe you grew up under a mother who was like that. And because of that, it, it happened. Maybe it was unconscious at first, but that, that image just began to rub off on you. Or maybe you grew up in a household uh, intentionally where being punctual was really emphasized. This was a strong thing in my home. Uh, to the point where I'm like obsessive about it. I, I really kicked against it in my younger years, but eventually I realized that this became a part of who I was. That rubbed off on me. Sometimes we desire it. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes we reflect the images of negative people. Like maybe we were in a household, you know, no parent or person is perfect, which means we all have traits that are great and others that we would like to change. This is the reality of being human. So maybe we inherit bad things. Like we are around people who are short-tempered, and because of that, uh, we grew up in a household or around people where, where quick-temperedness was what they did. That's how they responded to everything. And as a result, you are short-tempered. Or maybe you were in environments where the idea of working hard just really wasn't a priority. And as a result, maybe you, you absorbed some, some unhealthy leisure rhythms. That's a very fancy way of saying maybe we could be a little lazy, right? These traits, they rub off on us. Some we want, some we don't. And we could go on like this all morning, but I simply want to use this human reality to point out a very serious biblical truth about what it means to be a disciple. Because in discipling, in the Christian faith, we are specifically told that we've been meant to bear the image of somebody. We've been created in that way. And whether we know it or not, it truly is undeniable that every one of us is reflecting the image of something in our lives. And so our challenge today, at least in my teaching, I'm, I'm not going to assume that we're not bearing an image because we are. The challenge we have today is whether or not we're aware of that image and whether or not it is the right thing. Every person reflects something or someone. And the reason we're like this is because the Bible says we've all been created in God's image. I want you to think about what Genesis says. It literally tells us we have been made to be mirrors that reflect the goodness and the grace of our God. The very origins of humanity were meant to reflect the image of God into the world. And at some point, 
we truly choose to live in the image we were designed for, in the Christian paradigm, we deeply believe this is fulfilled by following Christ. Or we allow something else to, our, identify, to, to define our image in life. In other words, we might choose lesser images, maybe even unaware of them. Now, according to Genesis, it's God's desire that every person, and in particular those following God, it is his desire that we become a direct reflection of Jesus by embracing the lifestyle of a disciple. And while God wants this for all people, he tells us this in Genesis, not all people always want the same thing. There are folks in our world who want nothing to do with this type of image. And there are times in our own Christian life, remember this is not a place where we try to teach perfectionism or idealism, there are times in our own faith when we are trying to pursue God and have difficulty or maybe are even resistant to some of the areas that he calls us to reflect the image of himself in. Not all people always want this in all seasons of life. And this begs a really serious question that we have to think about and attempt to answer this morning. When it comes to image, are you consciously or unconsciously reflecting something in your life? What image are you consciously or unconsciously reflecting in your life? Because every one of us is reflecting the image of something. Because of this, we've got to become self-aware of what it is. That's where my appeal is to you this morning. Assume you are reflecting something because you are, and then honestly ask yourself if that reflection lines up with what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I suspect that we will all have areas of our lives where we can see it. You know, we have a yay area of life and places where there is room to grow. That's just the normal reality of following Christ. And the reason why knowing this is important is because genuinely following Jesus truly is a constant exercise in identifying what we've been turning to to shape our life image. We don't want to just think that we come to Christ for faith, like we place our faith in him and then that's it. We place our faith in him and then we truly spend the rest of our days following him and trying to sort out what it means to become more like him. And the way we can do that is by determining what it is we turn to for image. And if that thing isn't Jesus, or if it's something that takes a greater priority over Jesus, we then have to ask God for the help, the grace, and the mercy to turn back to Jesus. In the same way I'm assuming there is an identity we look to, I also want to assume that we, we have places where maybe we have distorted images or understandings of what we should be, or even of ourselves. And so remember, you and I have been built to be mirrors. And if we're not reflecting God, we are selling ourselves short of the human experience. That's the truth of what Genesis teaches us. We have been made to reflect that particular image. And consequently, we will likely set ourselves up for some form of heartbreak because there is no image we can bear that will fulfill us in the way Christ will. And so one of the keys to growing as a disciple of Jesus is getting to the place where you are keenly aware of what matters most to you in life. There are lots of ways we can describe this. Some people will say it's what you determine as beautiful in life. It's what you invest your time or your energy in life. It's figuring out when you think of what makes you you. The best way you can answer this question is by penning out the, the priorities of your life. Whatever matters to you is likely going to be a key indicator of what image you reflect. Because without doubt, we will become most like that which we most desire in life. And I'll give you a very common example of this. I use this a lot because it's probably the most pervasive one in the world we live in today. So for example, if, if the image you want to most bear in life, when people see you, you want them to see this. If the image you most bear in life is for people to approve of you, common need of the human heart is to be received and affirmed by people. In our modern world today, this is often translated into success. Whatever it is we're doing and however it is we're doing it, success and accolade Innately, nothing wrong with these things. 
right? These, these are the ways that we often garner, or, or this is the image we seek in life. We want people to look at us and believe that we matter, that we have value. That's a good thing, because we do have uh, value. However, if success is what we most desire, then what happens is it will become a God in our life, a lowercase g God. And when we begin to bear the image of something, when we begin to live for something that deeply matters to us, we will likely begin to do everything that we can to attain it. And this is one of the main reasons that workaholism is such a significant problem in our culture. Anytime we talk about work, I bring this up. I mean, Americans have the least amount of used vacation time on earth. And we are always climbing a ladder. That's part of the DNA of who we are as a country. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just want to make sure that we're not making something that could be very good success an idol or a god to the point where it begins to rob us of the more meaningful rhythms of life. And so like following Jesus, the God of success absolutely calls a person to bring every area of their life under its lordship. It demands the same thing. The big difference being, unlike Jesus, success and many of the other idols we often turn to for image, they are shifty gods. They come and they go. They regularly make promises to us that they cannot keep. And so when it comes to something like success or approval, what you likely will experience if you are wired this way is you will be filled with joy when, when you find success in whatever area of life that is. Consequently, you will likely be wrecked in your soul when it doesn't happen or when it doesn't happen the way you wanted it to happen. Because what happens in those moments is the God of success betrays us and we feel shorted or slighted. What happens then is we likely start to walk the road of emotional despair. All these emotions that we feel in life, they're often connected to our expectations of life. Uh, we are sad, or maybe we're depressed, or maybe we're angry at the situations in our life. Because when you pursue a lesser identity in life, you are likely going to be robbed of your true and unassailable identity in Jesus. That's what Genesis tells us. There is an image that actually allows us to, to have these other things in our lives in a way where they cannot hurt us. Because there is an ultimate image that defines these lesser images. And so a true Christ follower knows, while being a disciple is an identity granted to us by the grace of Christ, we've been made in this image. It's a gift from God. It is truly one that we have to be willing to fight for when other images that aren't Jesus try to cast us in their image. We need a spiritual, a physical, and an emotional awareness of the images in our life that we try to be like. And here's why this really matters. When your first identity in life is, you know, we could use multiple words here, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a Christian. We've, we've used several over these past weeks. I just want to use the idea of a disciple because it's one of the most common words used in the New Testament. When you are a disciple first in your identity, when you are a son or a daughter of God, you then have the freedom to engage these other images. You have the freedom to pursue things like success. And the reality is, is if you ultimately understand that you are validated and matter in life because of what Jesus is to you, it allows you to pursue success without it becoming a false god in your life. And that will likely remove the pressure cooker of success because that's what success can often breed. It can put us in a vacuum where, where, where we are just... We're really defined by doing more or being more to be more successful. There's even proverbial analogies used in non-Bible writings that say things like, you know, make sure when you climb the ladder of life that you don't get to the top of it and they figure out it's the wrong one. There's ideas that are far beyond the words of our scripture. We might even say they're like secular realities that communicate these truths, that we can actually pursue things in life that we think will fulfill us, but they will not. The beauty of pursuing Jesus first is we will have a greater sense of discernment in these areas because you know who you are in Jesus and that cannot be changed by acquiring success or the lack of it. 
the desire to live like this is an evidence that you are truly a child of God. And the life stability associated with this is immeasurable. This paradigm can be applied to anything we pursue in life. Uh, friendships, our romantic relationships, this, the peer influences we have with friends or with family. We can turn to these things and often expect things from them that will fail us. However, it's much better to look at these things in the light of Jesus because we will likely have not only realistic expectations in these areas or more realistic expectations, we will also be able to endure these things when they do not meet the needs we have in life. And I find that that is one good rule. It's a good foundational rule for us to understand any type of relationship we have, whether it's in a work environment or friends or our, our spouses or our children, is when we begin to think that something that is not Jesus is going to fully make us happy, it's going to fully meet all of our needs in life, we automatically set up that other entity or party for failure. Because verses like Genesis teach us there's only one image we are meant to reflect that can perfectly sustain us. And by perfect, I don't mean that we will get through life without any feelings or sadness or pain or emotion. What I am saying is, is the goodness and the grace of God is enough to sustain us through those things. It's enough to truly help us see we turned to a different image to help us deal with these things, as opposed to maybe wrecking the images that we are turning to in life that are hurting us because we've applied an unhealthy set of expectations to them. And so living in the identity of a disciple of Christ, like we've been talking about over these past weeks, is something that we will daily be challenged in our life to, to bring about. You know, we don't make one decision to follow Jesus and then that's it. We don't think about it for another 30 or 40 years. The truth of following Jesus is it's usually in the smaller moments of life. It can certainly be in big seasons of life, but, but following Jesus is often something we think about daily. And this leads me to the second thing that I want to mention to you this morning. We've been built to function in the identity of Jesus. However, there are lots of image distortions in our world that can really cause us to, to miss this identity. There are many images lobbying for our attention in life. There's other teachings in the Bible that Jesus uses, like the Good Shepherd analogy we talked about last week. There are other voices that call our name in life. And how is it that we get to this place where, where we can understand what to respond to? Well, I would argue that we want to be wise. And there's lots of ways we can talk about wisdom this morning, but there's only one key area that I want to mention for time's sake. Today, there are a lot of common distortions of image bearing, keeping people from truly embracing the identity of Jesus. And I want to sort of mine a principle from 2 Timothy 3.5. It'll be behind me. This is sort of like a paraphrased version of what's being said in 2 Timothy 3.5. In the last days, there will be many people who make a show of religion, but they really love themselves more than they love God. Stay away from these people because they love themselves more than they love God. It's an interesting statement here. In more traditional translations, like a more, a more literal translation in the scripture, often refers to this as embracing forms. And I'm putting that sort of like in parentheses. Forms of godliness that are actually powerless. In other words, we're turning to something that, that might have the appearance of religion or the shape of Christianity it might be a cousin to Christ, but it's actually not in the fold. And what happens is, is over time, we can sort of deceive ourselves into believing that these good things are actually good things. But what they are, are powerless things. That's what this verse teaches us. And that there will be times, seasons even in our own life, when we attempt to love things in the name of God, but truly what we're doing is loving ourselves at the expense of God. And so in other words, what, what we're learning in 2 Timothy is there are times when, when these belief systems, 
We attempt them or we, we subscribe to them because we believe they are genuine forms of discipleship or followership, but they're not. And that's what makes them so dangerous is they have the appearance of something that pleases God, but these behaviors scream that a person loves themselves more than they love God. That's what the evidence of this is in life. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, as brief as it is, I want to talk about a very common form of faux discipleship. As you'll see, it stands in sharp contrast to the biblical marks of a disciple we spoke about last week. A lover of truth, care for the community of faith, the men and women who are also following Jesus, and a burden for our neighbor. Those are the evidences of a genuine disciple. This thing we're going to talk about now, is a, is a gonna, a, it's going to stand in sharp contrast to those ideas, or those characteristics. And so if you want to genuinely reflect the image of God, you must make sure you avoid the trap of Christian consumerism. And I want to talk about this for a few moments. Consumerism is a word that is applied to many disciplines in life. But I want to talk about it from two angles this morning. First, unchecked religious consumerism, which is what I want to talk about now, is one of the greatest hard attitudes keeping people from genuinely bearing the image of God. There's a ton of writing on this today, lots of it. And lots of people who really have committed their lives to, to observing the movements of God in our country and in other parts of the world, they basically identified that this attitude, the desire to, to pour into self at the expense of others, is one that deeply contrasts with the rhythm of Jesus, who pours out for the sake of others with no benefit to himself. And so this, this idea, the motto behind this type of faith, says something to this degree. I'm really eager to receive much from Jesus. Like, I love the benefit package, but I am less eager to give anything back to him or to sacrificially serve others in his name. It's a very lopsided understanding of the work of Jesus in our lives and the work of Jesus through our lives. Now, let me get into the reality, the, the broad reality of consumerism for a moment. Because of the nature of the world we live in, everyone is a consumer to some degree. If you were to search, for example, economic health, this is probably the, the place where this is most prevalent in the world we live in today. One of the main ways we gauge economic health and progress in our world, and in particular this country, anybody know what index we use? Consumer spending. That's exactly right. The number one way, there are other tools, but one of the number one ways that we determine whether or not things are good or bad in our world is by this thing called the Consumer Spending Index. It's sort of like a magic number that tells us when all is right in the world. Now think about this. This week, it's funny how God works this way. I've wanted to talk about this for a couple of weeks, but this week there were so many articles, like in some of the things I subscribe to, about consumerism that I felt it deeply providential. Like God was like throwing me many bones of things to talk about. And I learned a bunch of stuff, uh, more stuff about consumerism this week. So this week I read in a business report that there, there have been growing concerns about the nature of our economy for some time. Things are beginning to slow. That happens naturally in economies. But one of the ways they determine when things are slowing is a consumer spending index tool. They analyze um, vehicle loans, car loans. And so there's a statistic that was released this week that said as of at the present, there are 7 million Americans who are now 90 days or more behind in their monthly car payments. And monthly car payments, that's one of the main things they use to look at when the economy is beginning to stabilize balance or maybe, maybe imbalance. This is an indicator which they said is, is higher than it was even before the sort of pre-recession numbers we saw in 2010. And so no matter where you go, if you want to figure out like, are things good in the world, the main way, one of the main ways we determine this in our country is by what we spend. The world looks at us and says, if you're spending, if you're consuming, that's a really good sign. So we should not be surprised that this is something deeply valued and encouraged. 
Now, before I go any further, I want you to, I want you to know that I, I'm not a zealot here. I am not against consuming or consumerism. This is the natural reality of the world we live in. And, for example, if you were to stop going to Publix and consuming meat, you would die. There are very healthy rhythms of consumerism. We have to have a place to live in. We have to have a vehicle to drive around in. I'm not at all, don't hear me, you know, pursuing some form of false idealism here. What I want to talk about is what happens if that becomes the primary identity of a person following Jesus. So, in other words, what happens is, is we buy the line, consumer, and then we slip Jesus somewhere in the middle. There's a problem there. The idea that everyone is a consumer makes a lot of sense because we live in a culture and a world that has many things to consume. For instance, the idea of consumer shopping, um, this is something that while it's prevalent in many parts of the world, it's not prevalent in every area of the world because it requires some prerequisites to be in place. This type of philosophy or strategy only works in a place where there are resources and something that people want to buy. The shopping plaza we meet in is a clear evidence of this. In 2000, I take that back, in 1999, I spent some time with the Maasai in East Africa, who are Bush people. There is no consumer spending index with those folks. They don't think like this, because this isn't a reality in their world. And so consumerism is sort of rooted in certain areas of the world. And I think this is a great example. The very theater we meet in, everything that's around us shows that there are products being offered to our culture for them to consume them. And while this is often the case where we live, there are tons of areas in the world where this attitude is less pervasive because there are fewer resources and therefore much less to consume. The challenges for faith are different in those areas of the world. But I want to talk about the challenge that is particular to our area of the world. This might be less of an issue for some people in other parts of the world, but far greater in ours. The reason being... Unchecked consumerism and Jesus don't mix. They can't mix. It's fair to say the further a person gets away from the biblical identity of a disciple of Christ, one who follows and pours out their life for Jesus, the more they will embrace the identity of a consumer of Christ. We sort of go one way or the other. And the store you often go shopping for Jesus in is called the church. At least that's the way it's been for a long time in America. There's another story I want to talk to you about here in a moment. Let me explain what I mean by this. Um, if you've been through our partnership class, we talk about this, not as deeply as I am today, but we address this. In our partnership class, we teach that over the past 20 years, the idea of involvement with faith, and particularly church, has really drifted towards what we would call religious consumerism. And the byproduct of this is that some Christians who, if you read the scripture, they're, they're called by God, they're meant to be transformed by the gospel, they begin to live their lives uh, committed to furthering the work of Jesus and his redemptive plan in the world through their natural spheres of influences, your school, your vocation. God has put you in those areas so that you can be a light to those areas. Over time, what we've seen is a lot of folks have started to see not only the church, but Christ and his church sort of like a religious retail store. And the sole purpose of these stores is to, to provide their personal life needs in a way that is sort of convenient. Some, here's an addition to this, some don't even go to the brick and mortar store anymore. They've adopted an Amazon brand of discipleship. And I'm speaking to you as a consumer now. Uh, 15 years ago, my first thought when I needed something was to go to a store. Now my first thought is, can I get it here in two days through Amazon Prime? I've been reshaped by the rhythms of the consumer world. And I think for a great many of us, we'd be naive to think that the Amazon Prime culture, which I deeply love, has not affected you know, the way we understand our faith. We listen to a ton of stuff online, and we worship online, and we practice e-Christianity, and there's nothing wrong with those tools, but what happens is they are, in many ways, subversively beginning to replace the main tool God has put on the earth for us to pursue and know Him, and following Jesus in the local community of faith, the church. 
And so what happens is some of us never really root themselves, we never really root ourselves deeply in a faith community and follow God with other people. I talked about this at length last week, so we will not do it here today. For time's sake, we're just going to talk about the brick and mortar store today, what it means to, to have a healthy understanding or relationship with the church family. There are lots of examples of this that can be given, but the bottom line is, is well, I guess, let me sort of fly off the cuff here. I'll share with you, I've shared this story with you before, but it's the most telling one I've had in my experience here at Restoration. In the very early days of Restoration, we were probably a year old. Um, somebody had actually come to our church. I saw them once and never saw them again. Didn't even get a name. They had come, and after church, they had asked to speak to me because they had some questions about our church, and I love doing that. I love talking to people in this room and throughout the week. It really is a joy in my life, and so I got in touch with this guy right after I started talking with him, and he had said to me that he had been shopping for a church. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Shopping for a church in a healthy sense is a good thing. Shopping for food to survive is a good thing. Shopping for a church can mean one of two things in somebody's vocabulary. It means they have indefinitely been bouncing churches because they can't find one to root into, often blaming all the churches, or they are really looking for a place to plant themselves in the way God desires them to serve the world. And so this person was talking to me, and he went on to immediately say some interesting things. They were, I had to have, like my, I call it my pastor poker face on. Uh, the first thing he said is, hey, I don't really care for your music or the fact that you meet in a movie theater, but um, your lyrics are okay, so I'm good with that. And I was like, oh, well, thank you. Like, look. Appreciate that. He then went on to say, um, I've noticed you're missing some things here. Some things still missing to this day. This is like a seven-year-old conversation. He said, you don't have any Sunday school classes, and I want to know when you're going to have that. And I said, listen, um, it's very hard for us to do anything else on site here because we don't have, like, educational space or the west wing of the building. We're still a portable church, meaning there are no spaces to do this, and we've created something called community groups to try to meet this need because we do recognize this is not enough. So there, are, there is, a, there is an, an example of what you're asking for. It's just very different than the brand you want. He went on to share a bunch of other things, and I won't share any of them with you today. It became very obvious to me that we had very different understanding, very different vision and values of what we thought the church was and the way we were practicing the rhythms of Christ here. And I was unsure whether or not these things could be brought together. But what was happening was this person was continually not just asking, but pressing for us to make changes. Like he was, it was sort of like saying, I want to speak to the manager of this grocery store, and I'm going to complain about a lot of stuff, and I want you to change these things, but I'm never going to come back. And that's sort of where that ended. And I remember thinking to myself how confused but common this understanding is that people have about the church. I want to put this in your world here for a moment. Think about this from the angle of the relationships that matter most to your life, in your life. Let's just say friendship. That's a big one. Every one of you probably has a friend or multiple friends that you really care about. Let's, let's take that comment and then parse it into friendship. Imagine if someone came to you and said, I really want to be your friend. Really. But before we do that, I have some things I need to tell you about how I understand friendship. A couple of things. First, um, you are tall, like 6'4", and I'm just going to use myself. I'm 5'9 like when the sun hits me just right, all right? <laughs> just right. On my driver's license, I put 5'10". Identity problem. This is an identity <laughs> issue. I'm the average American man, 42 coat jacket, 9 foot uh, uh, shoes, and I can't ever find anything in a store because everybody wears what I wear, right? 5'10". I've noticed you're like 6'3", and that's a little intimidating to me. So preferably, I like friends who are shorter because they make me feel better. However, um, I'm willing to consider us being friends. I also notice that you're pretty gregarious. You're sort of outgoing. Um, and in most of my relationships, I prefer to have folks who are less outgoing because they can spend more time thinking about me. You also ask a lot of questions. In my relationships, I like to do most of the talking. 
and I prefer you do the majority of the listening. This is what I think is good. And that said, uh, I want to point out that you really do have like, you know, it seems like you have a good head on your shoulders, and, and that really matters to me. So I would like to go ahead and give this thing called friendship a shot. How do you think this is going to work out? Not really good, right? It, we would probably have a really strong misunderstanding, like maybe even be a little confused, maybe even be a little cautious about that. It's a terrible approach to apply to any meaningful relationship, fully recognizing that some relationships fit better than others. Don't hear me saying that we don't have to make decisions in our relationships. I'm just saying for some folks, you know, years ago this was called consuming relationship. Now there's a term that has been branded by the generation below me. A lot of our millennials call this disposable relationship. It's an interesting way to look at it, and it's a very profound statement. It's a, it's a perspective on how people are beginning to treat each other. Not all people, but some. Now, even though it makes sense in a consumer-driven culture like ours that people would see the church like this, it truly is not healthy. Don't hear me arguing for, for not using wisdom or discernment in partnering with a family or serving Jesus. All I want to say is that this idea, when left unchecked, becomes a one-sided relational idealism. And people who often see their faith in Christ and their relationship with other people like this, they do believe that God has given us all these things for their personal needs. And there is a very strong element of the faith that God speaks about, desiring to, to care for our personal needs. There needs to be a comma after that, though. Because if we start to see the church like that or our lives like that, only like that, if we end the period, or end the sentence at, what do you do for me, Christ? What do you do for me, church? What do you do for me, brother and sister in Jesus? It actually becomes impossible to serve others. Logically and theologically, God cannot use us where he's planted us to serve others if we're only concerned about ourselves. And this is where the idea of the consumer spending index, consumerism, consumer Christianity, all become immersed in each other. There can be blurry lines here. And so when people understand their identity in Jesus and his church like, like the church is meant to be, it's very different than understanding the church as, I'll just use a consumer statement, as a dispenser of religious goods and services, many of which are really good and valuable. But if we start to see, for example, our relationships, our church family or families, if you're visiting here or you have other men and women who know Jesus, if we start to see them like cans of comparable soup on an aisle, we're going to have a problem. And this breeds two different ideas. And this is how we'll wrap up. In our partnership class, I say this. People who sort of understand the world in the consumer paradigm, only that paradigm, they, they see the things that God provides as you know, programs or even what would be considered a professional like me. I really don't like that word, but it's sort of how I'm looked at. This mantra of this person says, I, I go to a church. And I know many people say that with a good motive. But what's interesting about going to church is that you're going to be hard-pressed to find that statement anywhere in the Scripture. People who I think practically or consistently understand the marks of a disciple we spoke about last week, valuing truth in the Word, uh, they value the church family, and they serve their neighbor wherever Christ leads them, whether it's next door or across the oceans, they often think differently. They say things like, we are the church. And that is actually a very biblical statement. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, I go to church. I just want us to be mindful of the fact that that can subversively cause us to think that the church, past, present, and future, is relegated to like 72 minutes on a Sunday morning. And while this is a major part of what the church does, it is only one facet of what the church actually is. Because the church is actually us. That's what Jesus says. So think about this. Where we go, the church goes. Where you go, the church goes. Where I go, the church goes.
And this is why I say we want to be mindful, not idealists about consumerism. Again, I want to reiterate, I'm not against this. I'm just saying it cannot be our primary identity in life. And if you need more evidence of this, here's how we'll end. Jesus tells us this in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45. He insists that this should never be the case for his people. And then he goes on to say, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He's already flipping the world upside down. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, by example, he says here, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the reason we can confidently say that God desires us to be a people who pour ourselves out for others, we find the balance between being invested in and pouring out, is because the Son of God himself, who frankly merited all of the attention in the world, he merited everything, all the goodness and all the glory, he tells us that despite being worthy of all that stuff, his decision was not to be served, but to set the example of what it means to serve others and to give his life for us. And so you see, if you want to be remade in the image of God, you have to wholeheartedly pursue Jesus with every fiber of your being. There's no idealism in that statement either. That's a hard thing to do. But we have to desire it. And if we lack the desire, we should ask God to help us have the desire. Remember, God does not just want some of us. He loves you enough to want all of you. And the scripture teaches us like right here in Mark that Jesus gave everything for us so that we could truly reflect his name, bear his image and his identity. And so the question we ask ourselves today and prayerfully every day of our lives is, Will we give ourselves back to Jesus? This is the, the difference between one who consumes Christ and one who really recognizes what it means to receive what Christ has given them. It creates a different type of heart. And so as we move towards our response, ask yourself, what are you seeking your identity and image in this life? No, we're all on common ground here. Everyone in this room, myself included, we have images and things we look to that are appealing but might not be the best for our lives. We have to be confident and honest with God about that. He already knows. Know that God is a good God and a God of grace. And what he wants to do is clarify that distortion. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your image? And what is it you will do about it as you leave this place in just a few moments? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, man, from the beginning of time as we know it, from the beginning of creation, you have told us your desire is that we not only be made in your image, but that we reflect your image. You have never, in your treatment of us, you have never given us anything less than your full self. And that is an amazing, that is truly a beautiful thing. That is something that should matter to us. And I pray, Lord, in these, these brief, quiet moments we have left with each, with each other, that you would truly help us to understand not only what it means to hear the words you have created us in your image, but to experience those words deeply. I pray, Lord, today that every single one of us in, in this room would really take some time to think about who we are in your son, Jesus that we would profess our love for him for the first time today, that we would offer our sin and our failures to you and recognize deeply that you went to the cross for them and that, Father, we would truly be the people, if we are in you, who in more meaningful and captivating ways stand in awe of your goodness and your grace. May your Son, our King God, direct our steps this morning in a way, Father, that helps to bring a deeper level of nourishment and, and healing and help and hope in our lives. Bless this time we have together, these remaining moments. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.